short interlude like this is known as a pericope, um, and that literally means a cutting out. And uh, in formal rhetoric, it's a set of verses that form a coherent unit or thought. Basically, all that means is it stands on its own. It really doesn't need anything supporting it on either side. Um, so um, uh, that's what we're looking at is this, this self-contained story. Uh, but we need to address something on the front end. You'll likely see right around there in your translation, it says uh, probably something like the earliest and most reliable manuscripts do not have John. 7:53 through 8:11. So there's a few places like this in the in the New Testament. The end of Mark comes to mind as well. Um, this happens through something what's called uh, textual criticism, and that's where you take all the fragments of of all of the uh, the, the lits, little bits and pieces of, of, of papyri and things like that 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 we have from uh, from ancient. Uh, copies of New Testament writings, and a very rigorous scholarly approach puts them in kind of a timeline and says, okay, which ones are the earliest? And you can usually tell because if, if there was a little error introduced at some point, then the ones after that have that error because they kind of say, well, that's part of the script. Uh, or sometimes a scribe would add a little word maybe in the margin, and then later copies have that word in the text that type of thing. So over thousands and thousands of, of hours of just incredibly smart men and women sitting down with all of these little bits and pieces of the New Testament uh, papyri and, and, and uh, manuscripts, they've been able to kind of piece together the timeline of, of what really the, the, the ancient text contained. Um, and so, like I said, you'll, you'll find uh, little notes in the, like this throughout your Bible of this, this may not be, uh, this phrase may not have been in the original text or something like that. So you can take one of two stances on this, and I, I really feel that the second one is correct. One, you could say, well, who knows? You know, who knows that what we have is accurate? But I, there's, again, hundreds of thousands of scholarship, hours of scholarship put into making sure that this um, is, is exact. And the second attitude you can take is look at the incredible confidence we have that the Bible does represent exactly the word of God and what God inspired for them to write. And, and, and that is, there's a lot of ground to stand on with, with that viewpoint. We know that what we have is a New Testament um, script. We, we know we have the writings. And if there's any area of doubt, it's always annotated. So this is one of those areas where uh, maybe it wasn't in the original uh, writings, um, but... Um, so uh, through textual criticism, but nobody really has, has questioned whether this is an authentic uh, in, interlude. Um, in fact, another form of criticism called form criticism, funny how that worked, um, uh, looks, at, looks at the writing and they say, this, this really is the form of so much of the other New Testament writings. It, it contains the same type of language, it contains things that, that, that really do fit well with the way that the New Testament writers uh, wrote. You remember in John, it, it says that Jesus did, did many other things that are not recorded in this book. And, and so, you know, it, it makes sense that there's many things written down about Jesus and what he did that, that the gospel writers didn't necessarily bring in, uh, in into their narrative. But that doesn't mean they aren't authentic uh, uh, descriptions of what happened in Jesus's life. So um, 
just wanted to cover that on the front end. Um, the question is not, is it authentic? Most scholars think it is. It's just that we're pretty sure John didn't write it, okay? Uh, some some uh, old manuscripts put it at the end of Luke. Sometimes it's put earlier in John, that kind of thing. It's a great story. Just not sure where it, where it fit, okay? So uh, given that, let's, um, let's read our text, starting in verse 53 of chapter 7. They went each to his own house. But, when Jesus, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him, so they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. What a great story, isn't it? Let's pray together. God, as, as we read this, this little interlude of the, the life of Christ, we really pray that you'd help us to bring out the things that really you want us to understand and know about our walk with you, about the heart of Jesus and about our heart of sin and, and how he heals us as well and he, and he takes the place of us uh, in condemnation. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So we're going to break this down into four stages. Uh, We'll call them scenes, for lack of a better term. Um, so scene chapter one is really setting the stage. So the backdrop here is, is finishing up the, 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 the festival. And Corey did a great job last week of, of talking about uh, the seventh and final day of the, the festival. You remember him talking about the pool of Siloam and taking the pitcher down to the pool and taking it up and, and the water. And then, and then Jesus standing up on that last day of the festival in, in verse 37 of chapter 7, he says, he, I stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And of course, the Pharisees rejected him as a living water. And, and, and uh, the second part of, of that story after, after that, is about verse 42 on, describes the Pharisees meeting with the temple guard. So that's the context of, of why it's placed here in John. So um, that meeting has happened, but uh, so what, what's going on? That, that was the seventh and final day, but if you look back in, and you can just write this in your notes, Leviticus chapter 22, verse 39, it says, on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day 
shall, shall be a, a solemn rest. So there's seven days of festival, but then this eighth day is a day of solemn rest. And so if, if this story is placed here, then this is the day of solemn rest. And, and Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and then he went to the temple, and he sat down and started teaching. So you think about, if you've had seven days of festival, and the next day is a day of rest, say, hey, let's go up to the temple. Let's sit down and listen to Jesus for a while. I get this picture that it's morning time. You know, the birds are chirping in the background. The, the temple is, is nice and cool. And Jesus is sitting there talking. And so you see this commotion coming through the hall. You see the Pharisees dragging this woman. Was she clothed? I don't know. My guess is they threw her a blanket to wrap around. And she's clutching, trying to keep herself covered as she's tripping along, being dragged along. She's disheveled and, and just sobbing, and, you know, just tears coming down her face. Um, and, and they get up, and, and, and it says they placed her in the midst. Now, I don't think that was a really nice, oh, please, miss, uh, stand here. You know, uh, it wasn't like that. I think they just threw her in, the, in there, and she's tripping and trying to, to keep covered up and, and, and hiding her face. Um, and, and the crowd is around, you know, it, it went from this just nice serene teaching moment of Jesus to just this total chaos. And then you have the Pharisees coming up, Jesus, we caught her in the act. She was caught in adultery. Now, my guess is the adultery didn't happen at night, 8 a.m. in the morning. My guess is that it happened the night before, and they held this woman that long. So they held her overnight. So she had a, a night of, of sleeplessness, of pain, of humiliation. Um, and, uh, and so here she, she is. She's sleepless, uh, hungry, half-naked, dragged out in public, and thrown before Jesus, humiliation, and fear would just course through her veins. We don't know any, any more about her if she, if, if she was married. In other words, if the adultery was she was married and the other man was married or she was married and the man was not, you know, who knows? But maybe she had a husband. What if the husband was in the crowd? Can you imagine the, her shock in, in having to face him, that there's the eyes of her husband and he just has no idea this is going on? Think about just the circumstances. Allow your mind just to kind of fill in the gaps here. Um, now the Pharisees are yelling condemnation. Law of Moses says we need to stone her. Well, they're referring back to Deuteronomy 22 and Leviticus 22, but they, and they were correct. They were qu quoting it correctly, but they missed a little bit. Verse 22, 22 in Deuteronomy says, if a man if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die the man who lays with the woman and the woman, so shall you purge the evil from Israel. Leviticus 20 verse 10 says, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So the big question here is, where's the dude, right? <laughs> what about the guy? <laughs> you know, I don't think the Pharisees tried to catch him as well. I think the woman was, was enough. Because they weren't about trying to uphold the law of Moses. If they did or were, they were, would have brought the guy too. They wanted to catch Jesus. Here's a vulnerable, you know, miserable, frightened young woman. 
and they wanted Jesus to condemn her to death. So uh, another thing that they forgot, that uh, the law of Moses also required due process. Deuteronomy 17, verse 6 says, on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people. Now keep that in mind. First one to put them to death, cast the first stone. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Deuteronomy 19.15 also says something similar. So you got three problems here. First of all, they didn't include the man. And secondly, they, they had neglected this law um, until this opportunistic moment to trap Jesus. Um, they, they, they had, there had not been a practice of stoning uh, those caught in adultery in this time. In fact, Roman law prohibited them from, from executing people under their own law. The Romans were quite happy to execute people, but they were the ones that got to do it. They wouldn't allow their subjects to, to execute anyone. That's, that's the Pax Romana, the, the peace of Rome uh, enforced through their own uh, violence. So you, you might recall in, I think it's John 18, Jesus, uh, or they bring Jesus before Pilate and says, you go, he says, you go take care of him. And they says, we're not, we're not allowed to put him to death. So they were trying to get Pilate to take responsibility for the death of Jesus. So they were using the Roman law to their advantage under that instance. And we won't go too far into it here, but, but you know, when Stephen came in, in Acts chapter 7, I think he was a, a kind of a, a side kind of person. He wasn't well known. I don't think putting him to death would have really raised the alarm of the Romans. But the Romans knew who Jesus was. And if the Jews had put him to death and there was an insurrection, it would have been blamed on the Jews. If the Romans got to put him to death, then any insurrection, well, that was the Romans' fault because they're the ones that crucified him. Okay, see how that works. So uh, the, the Pharisees were not being consistent. They had neglected this law. Now you think back of Joseph and Mary. What did Joseph do when he found out that Mary was with child? He, uh, you know, and the people around him weren't really buying this Holy Spirit bit kind of stuff, right? Um, and so Joseph was going to divorce her quietly, right? And that, that probably was the rule of, of, of the day that most people did that. But, but here they said, ah, she needs to be stoned. So again, they didn't include the man. They had neglected this law pretty much all along. And then they sidestepped the law that required two or three witnesses and a cross-examination, basically due, due process. Okay. So why was this? Well, the situation is apparently just an, an attempt to entrap Jesus. And that's what it said in verse 6. If he is lax towards the Mosaic law, then he's condemned. He's standing in opposition to Moses. He's no rabbi. You can't listen to him. But if he holds a strict line, then he has allowed them to prevail in their ungodly treatment of this woman and has opened himself up to trouble from the Romans, for he will be held responsible if the stoning proceeds. That rabbi Jesus told us to stone her. So it's his fault. The Romans would have to take it up with Jesus. So it seems like they've got him uh, just in their crosshairs, okay? So that was 
I, I blew through scene two there as well. <laughs> uh, we set the stage and we talked about the accusers, which was scene two. And now scene three, let's talk about the response. And John, in verse six, says they, they said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. So there's been so much speculation about what Jesus wrote. But one thing's for certain, those that wrote about Jesus didn't include extra details that were unimportant to the story. So they didn't describe the scene. It was a beautiful morning in the temple. The wind was coming through. It's nice and cool. Jesus had a freshly pressed robe on, this, that, and the other, and, and had pomegranates for breakfast. You know, they, they didn't go into this kind of detail. Uh, gospel writers didn't do that. But when they included a detail, they meant to include it. So there's something behind this writing on the ground. So, you know, traditionally we thought, well, Jesus is just doodling on the ground buying some time. You know, maybe you're one of those thinkers that you doodle when you think. You're just concentrating so hard, you're just kind of, I don't think it was that. Quite honestly, this was not a tough challenge for, for Jesus. We think, oh, Jesus, oh, look at his, his skill in figuring this out, and you know, just his intellectual power to get out of this, you know, seemingly unsurmountable situation. No, this was a piece of cake for Jesus. I mean, he could just see right through this duplicity this wasn't even a challenge, okay? So, um, and some say, well, maybe he was just avoiding the awkwardness. Here's this half-naked woman in front of her, and it's, it's just, you know, he's just looking down, looking away, you know? Some people say that. Uh, some people say he's playing tic-tac-toe. I don't know, but, but uh, um, we get some insight from, from the word that's used. The, the word grapho is a word for right in the New Testament. It's used over, well, about 200 times. But there's, there's a lot of evidence from early manuscripts that a special word was used here, and it's the only time it's used in the New Testament. It's called katagrapho. And basically, uh, what it means is to write with a possible implication that what is written is an accusation. So grapho is to write, katagrapho is to write an accusation. So that's the word that's used here in verse 6. That, that as he continues to write in verse 8, it's back to grapho. But that one instance maybe gives us some great insight. So what's this about an accusation? Well, remember the quote that we had from John chapter 7, the last day of the feast, he stood up and said, if anyone thirsts, you know, come to me. I'll provide streams of living water. And as, as, as uh, Corey said last week, that living water was rejected by the Pharisees. Turn in your Bible. Just hold, hold your thumb where you are, if, 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 unless you're electronics thing. That's impossible to do. Um, um, and go over to Jeremiah chapter 17. This verse will, will, will really blow your mind. Um, and, and if the connection is, is what's intended, it's, it's incredible. So in Jeremiah 17, verse 13, it reads, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. 
for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. So these guys knew their Old Testament. When they saw Jesus riding, maybe writing their names, they immediately went back to this verse in Jeremiah 17. And Jesus is making the accusation by writing their names in the dust that they have rejected the Lord, the fountain of living water. That may have been all he wrote, but maybe he started writing specific accusations. He wrote their names out. He would have known who they were, wrote their names, wrote a sin, wrote another name, wrote another sin, maybe a secret sin, maybe something that had never been revealed to anyone before, but Jesus knew of it and was writing it out. In any case, they were being convicted about their sin. They continued to throw this at Jesus. Jesus, what do you say? What do you say? But I would imagine that they started to say that with just a little less zeal as they went along, as they started to realize what was happening, as they started maybe to have their eyes open and see that here's this poor woman sobbing miserably in humiliation, half naked in front of them, being used by them as a pawn for, quote, righteousness. Maybe they started to have this conviction. So Jesus stood up and says what's called, what, what we often quote sometimes, let he who is without sin throw the first stone. And we like to throw that one out there and say, ah, don't try to convict me of sin unless you're sinless. You know, we, we kind of twist it that way. Well, that's not what Jesus was saying. He was referring back to the Old Testament law. It says, okay, the accuser, those who are going to sign the death warrant here, you've got to cast the first stone. And if you're without sin, possibly in this matter, he might have been referring just that matter. If you're without sin in this, if you're without duplicity in bringing this woman before me, if you truly are sincere and zealous about the law, the law of Moses, you step forward, two or three of you, let me question you. Let me establish the authenticity of, of, of your witness. And then, buddy, you go find the biggest stone you can and have at it. I think that's what he's saying here. But based on what he said, they started leaving. The Bible says that the elder ones among them went out first. Now, we, we, we have heard speculation before about, well, it's the older ones that really are in tune for their sin. Hey, I'm, I'm older, and I can tell you that that's probably not universally accurate. <laughs> a lot of times, us old folk, are, we're, we're a bit more uh, uh, foggy about our sin. So I, I think, you know, that it makes for an interesting statement or an interesting point, but I think, truth be told, the elders were the first ones to come in to a, you know, a group, and they were the first ones to walk out. It was, it was just protocol that the elders left first and others followed. Okay, so let's not read too much into that. Um, so in any case, Jesus goes back down to the ground, starts writing again, and, he, and whether he's pretending it or not, you know, he's just totally absorbed in his writing. Maybe he's continuing the list. We don't know. But at some point, he looks up, sees her and says, where'd they go? Is there no one to condemn you? 
no witness? And she says, no, Lord, no one. He says, well, neither do I condemn you. He says, I wasn't a witness. I didn't see it. The law of Moses requires two or three witnesses. So I can't condemn you. You're free to go. So the question here would, would be that, did Jesus violate the law of Moses? No, she deserved to die. If there were witnesses there to, to uh, corroborate the fact that, that she, she was caught. No one was there, therefore, uh, she walked, okay? But Jesus, you know, obviously he knew who she was. He knew her sin. If any of us were there, he would have known our sin. And the point he said is, go and stop sinning. Leave your life of sin. It, it sounds like the paralytic, right? Where he says, go and, and stop sinning. That nothing worse may happen to you. Um, but that's, that's the message, and that's the end of the story. It's an amazing story, isn't it? So let's draw a couple, uh, a couple things from it as soon as I can get my... There we go. All right. So, so my title this morning is Jesus, Justice for All. So that was a big introduction. Now the timer starts, right? <laughs> um, no, okay. No, it's a, we're just going to draw a couple, couple uh, uh, observations here. We'll close out. First of all, you know, look, look at the sin of adultery. It's one of the most devastating sins there is. And in fact, in the Old Testament, if God was ever trying to convict Israel about their faithlessness to him, he often drew on the fact that you've been adulterers. You've been adulterous. You've forsaken me. You've forsaken the covenant that we've had. You, you've violated that. You've, you've uh, prostituted yourself uh, throughout the hills of, of Judea. Um, so God uses that many times in the Old Testament as, as the most egregious sin against him, adultery. And, you know, I, I don't know everybody's past, but I, I can say almost with certainty that, that we've had couples in this room that have been through this, these type of situations. And, and just the devastation and the tears uh, that, that, that go through this. Um, and the recovery, the lack of trust, the building back of trust, that type of thing. It's just a devastating, devastating sin. There was a husband involved. Maybe he was in the, the crowd again. Uh, he's going to have to re regain that trust. Uh, the wife of the man she was with, children involved. We all know that long-term effects of, of marital infidelity and, and certainly divorce uh, just terrible on the children, very hard on the children. Broken families, broken friend friendships, community impact. You know, it was looked down upon um, in, in this Jewish culture. And if you were an adulteress, that was a title applied to you from there forward. And, oh, if you were in junior high or high school, if you ever had to read the Scarlet Letter, it's kind of like that, that you, you, you had that, that stigma attached to you from that point forward in the rest of your life. You know, we're quick to condemn sometime in our righteous zeal, aren't we? We're zealous for God's law. We're willing to call out sin as sin. But sometimes we throw our zeal behind what's right as an absolute without having the compassion to help ease the suffering that may result. So you, do you think that the, the 
Pharisees really cared at all about the families and the children that would be devastated by this punishment? No, that was not their concern. Their zeal was for the law of Moses. Well, actually to trick Jesus, but secondarily for the law of Moses. Um, and if, if that condemnation had gone through and, and this woman had been put to death to fulfill the law of Moses, they would have felt that their job was over. We see this a lot in, quote, um, you know, ultra-conservative or fundamentalist Christianity is all about finger-pointing, right? You, you sinner, repent, 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 change your ways. Um, but, but that's not the, the religion of Jesus. But what do we often do? Well, we pendulum to the other side, where we basically accept and condone. Yeah, we understand the Bible really speaks against it, but hey, we're all sinners. Let the first who is without sin cast the first stone. And welcome, we're just going to love you, put our arms around you, and you know, accept you for who you are, okay? Not deal with the sin. That's an easy one to take, and that's really what our modern-day Christian movements around us in the 21st century, that's, that's the stance they've taken. They stand for no, nothing. In fact, in 1 John 4, it says friendship with the world is enmity towards God, is hatred towards God. And so many, many of the different types of churches around us and in our, in our culture have really bought into that hook, line, and sinker. We'll be a friend of the world. We'll throw our doors wide open. We won't question what you do or who you are or what your background is. That's your business. Just come worship with us. Hey, so that's not the answer either. We have to show compassion and conviction. We have to have zeal for God's word and for his law, but have empathy, empathy and advocate for, for healing. Turn over into Isaiah 42. We'll hit a couple Old Testament passages and then close out here. This is an amazing passage. It says in Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4, Behold my servant who I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul desires delights, excuse me. I have my spirit upon him. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will be faithful. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Jesus was uniquely qualified to bring justice to this woman. He was a bruised reed. He was a smoldering wick. Jesus was born in disgrace. If you were to go through the genealogy in Matthew 1 with a good upstanding Jew at this time and say, look at the pedigree of Jesus, it would have started out, oh, just fine for the first two verses until you hit verse 3, Tamar. Who was Tamar? Huh? She was uh, the daughter-in-law of Judah, had to trick him uh, in, by pretending to be a prostitute so that he would have sex with her so she could have a child. Um, deception and prostitution. Sex with her father-in-law. Okay, that's the lineage of Jesus. Well, okay. That's verse 3. Let's see if it gets any better. Well, we hit verse 5. Rahab, the prostitute of Jericho. 
You read about her in Joshua chapter 2. Okay, let's see how we go forward. That's two strikes. Mm. Verse 6, Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. Ooh, the adulteress. Well, you know, okay, David seduced her, all that stuff, but really, okay, she committed adultery. That's Jesus' lineage. Wow. Uh, moving right along, we hit the end of it. We hit verse 10, and it says Mary. Well, Mary became pregnant out of wedlock. Her betrothed husband, who knew the child wasn't his, like, uh, likewise didn't have her put to death, as the law would have allowed, but he stuck with her. Okay. Now, we understand the, the, the divine uh, intervention and the conception uh, by the hand of God. We understand that, but the people around her didn't, and the Jews certainly would not have thought that. So Jen, Jesus' lineage, his pedigree, had prostitutes, adulteresses, and even his own birth was sus suspect. Remember John chapter 8, when he's talking to the Jews, it's a big back and forth, the discussion, it gets a little bit heated, and then the, in verse 38, it says, they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham. In verse 41, says, you are doing the works of your father. Uh, they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Well, where did that come from? Well, it's a Jew saying, Hey, Jesus, we know your pedigree. We know you're an illegitimate child. We're not illegitimate children here. We're authentic Jews. Okay, so that's a big dig. Jesus grew, grew up under that stigma. So in Isaiah 53, verse 3, it says, He was despised and rejected by men. This is a, this is a prophecy of, of the Savior. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from men whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. How would that have been brought about? Likely because of this questionable lineage. Okay. Think about your own life here for a second. What are you ashamed of? If you were thrown down into the midst of this assembly, what would the accusations be against you? What would you be humiliated by? If the keepers of all laws, right and perfect, were to throw you before Jesus, what would be their charge? Like this woman, would you see in the crowd the eyes of those you've devastated by your sin? The accusations would fly. What is it in your life that's prime material for Satan? Revelation 12 says the accuser of our brothers who's been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, talking about Satan. That's Satan tactics. Get you to sin, and then accuse you day and night about that sin. Satan's ploy against Jesus was to get him to sin in the first place, and he was, uh, he was not successful. He knew that having a record of sin was his airtight case for accusation. His ploy with us isn't always to get us to sin. He's got plenty on his record. But to remind us of our sin, to humiliate us in our own minds, how could God love me? There's no hope. This is what takes us out, folks. We've had some great restorations here lately. And I would venture to say that in each case, it was hopelessness. It was frustration. It was, it was a lack. It was the accusations that Satan threw at them in their own heads that took them out. I, I, I have never been uh, aware of someone leaving God 
out of questions about the authenticity of God's word or about God's existence. That might be a smokescreen, but when you really dig in, it's always a hopelessness. It's always a, how could God love me? It's always, I'm tired of trying. And that's Satan throwing these accusations day and night. But if we were to continue in Isaiah uh, 53, the very next verse in verse 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And get this statement. By his wounds we are healed. 1 Peter 2.24 repeats that. It says, He himself bore our sins in, in, in his body on the tree, that we may die to sin and live to righteousness. And here it is. By his wounds you have been healed. Romans 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. A little later in the chapter, verse 33, it says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who just who it is God who justifies. It is God who brings justice. God brings justice in our relationship with him. He brings reconciliation. He makes us whole. We're healed through him, just as Jesus brought justice to this woman. He brings justice to our lives. We're reunited with him. The devastation that we caused in our relationship with God is wiped away. And we are brought back into a, a wholehearted, completely unblemished fellowship with God and with each other. It's an amazing, amazing relationship. This woman walked away from this experience with Jesus completely healed, knowing that she had that second chance to make it right, that she could walk forward and be completely clean. I want to close out with you in, in Titus chapter 2, and this is your challenge. Put yourself into that mind of the woman. What would have humiliated you? What, is, what are the accusations that Satan continues to throw at you? And think of yourself going through this entire scenario with Jesus. For him to say, stand up, look at you in the eye and say, neither do I condemn you. Go, stop sinning. Isn't that amazing to think about? And that's what's happened in each of our relationships with God when we are in Christ. Verse 11 of chapter 2 of Titus, for the grace of God has appeared. Amen. That's exactly what we're talking about this morning. Bringing salvation for all people, not just those caught in adultery. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the, in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Brothers and sisters on the peninsula, let's put this, uh, this passage into, into practice. Let's recognize that we re have received the grace of the adulterous woman and that we stand unblemished before God and let's live a life of gratitude. Amen.